From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Coming to you live from Sweden, you're with Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Hello, today's talk is going to be about propaganda and Palestine and Israel. But first, uh, they say you should never apologize and you should never explain, but I'm going to make an exception to that by apologizing for the, the break in the line yesterday. Um, it was with the, the, the former leader of the, the Swedish NATO opposition, and um, I was about to ask him uh, with respect to the previous interviewer interviewee who had just talked about the dangers of a digital currency, which we might have in Europe quite shortly. Um, but what's uh, and and one of the risks i mean one of the dangers is the total government control over our spending and uh, it's you know for instance if you're an alcoholic you won't be able to go into a wine shop and buy alcohol but only uh, that your credit card will be block any purchases from such a, a retailer but you will be able to spend money on food obviously those sort of safe examples are given but i mean you can imagine if you're a NATO opponent and you say something on social media, uh, your account can be blocked. So I was about to joke that if he was able to go out to lunch after this in a digital world, in a, a digital currency world, after having appeared on my show, and at that point, the show, his line died. So although some people might say, well, uh, NATO need not fear uh, the opponents of NATO in Sweden if, uh, if uh, the chief opponent is an elderly man who can't get his internet connection to work, um, I'm just hope, holding out the possibility there might be some other kind of interference into his show. Not to be paranoid, it could be could be just a normal snafu. Anyway, segueing on to the next topic, uh, which is propaganda uh, and advertising. Well, I'll just start with a little personal story. Uh, my father was in advertising all his life. Um, British advertising was and perhaps is the best in the world. It was much more subtle and soft selling than uh, the American advertising from which it learned a lot of its tricks. But at the annual Cannes Lion Awards in uh, in Cannes in France, which was uh, just after the film festival, I think the British used to take home um, a lot of awards. So there the, the uh, empire never set. Um, but uh, my, my father used to do drinks and uh, tobacco advertising, very witty, and he's famous for the sh you know who slogan for Schweppes. I don't know if we're supposed to use brand names on this show, but he never used to make. We just we talk about propaganda and advertising quite a lot in our in our conversations over the years, and he said that he didn't make much of a distinction between uh, advertising and propaganda. And uh, he would tell me how uh, the advertising industry after the First World War grew out of the, the propaganda campaigns that were so successful in, in motivating people to die in the trenches. And um, he, the, 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 um, um, the sort of chief, one, one of the chief propagandists, the most successful uh, purveyors of the propaganda theory, who wrote a book called Propaganda, was Edward Bernays. He was a, a nephew of... Um, Sigmund Freud, he worked in uh, in intelligence, military intelligence in the World War, and came up with slogans that um, really quite effective and brutal at motivating people to die. And I think uh, one of his colleagues had this brilliant idea of inventing the white feather campaign, where young women uh, would walk around with white feathers that had been provided by someone in the military. And they'd hand it to any young man they saw walking in the street, as, as, as if to say, why are you such a coward? Why you're a white feather kind of guy, and that would 
shame the guy to go into enlist and uh, fight in the Somme or whatever. And then in the 1920s, Bernays, I think, was behind the famous Liberty Sticks campaign, um, freedom cigarettes to get women to smoke. And he was very successful in that. And um, a lot of uh, people, as I said, learned from, from World War I propaganda to become the purveyors of modern advertising that we see today. And of course, you had David Ogilvy, who's my father's mentor uh, in uh, World War II. He worked for the British Security Coordination, which was this office in the Rockefeller Center, I think, that uh, tried to persuade the isolationist Americans to join uh, another war on behalf of the British. And um, uh, Ogilvy was a central propaganda officer there. And after the war, he's, he was um, he had his own agency, Ogilvy, which won awards on both sides of the Atlantic. And I think its most famous slogan was uh, the loudest noise you can hear in a Rolls Royce at 50 miles an hour is the the, the clock. And um, so my father was saying about that, and he, he said he, he'd say that uh, talking to, to clients that uh, getting friendly with journalists is not so effective because they'll always get the message wrong and they'll complicate things. Simple slogans are the most effective thing on the side of a bus, repetition and simplicity. And then you can get people to believe anything. And I'd like to develop this topic in another editorial, but what's amazing, I think, today in today's sort of propaganda situation is how our, our government media have persuaded us to fight a war in Ukraine which I see as essentially a sort of territorial civilizational di dispute between the Ukrainian speakers in the West and the Russian speakers in the East, each with their respective masters, uh, which has its roots in the sort of inferiority complex that, that highly nationalist Ukrainians in the West had about uh, Russian culture. And it's all about which way to dry, draw the border between the two civilizations in that part of the world. I mean, Ukraine was a polycentric, multicultural country with two Slav nations inhabiting the same thing. Now, we're supposed to engage in that local topic and even destroy our own civilizations and sacrifice millions of lives for this. At the same time, we have completely open borders. So, you know, and I've been to dinner parties where you discuss these things and, and men say, well, I'm going to go and fight Russia. And they'll swear at Russia for a few minutes. And then when you, you point out, well, I mean, Sweden has let in 2 million migrants from, from the Arab world and Afghanistan. What are you going to do about that? And they suddenly go quiet. So they dare not take on the human resources managers or their companies who will be watching them like hawks if they say anything wrong in, in, in the office. But uh, they're going to go and die and perhaps bring their family with them in a, in a sort of civilizational nuclear fight with Russia. It's all very strange, but that shows you what propaganda can do. It can persuade you of two totally separate concepts. Now, we're going to segue into the, um, the Palestine-Israeli conflict because we've got a very interesting person here, Hanid Wake, who's a Palestinian and who's worked for the Swedish government uh, as a diplomatic officer. We'll bring in Hani Drake after the break. This is TNT Radio. Giving you what you want. I want the fact. Today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Hi, Hani. So, why hi. should... Hi, how are you doing? Um, why should Europeans care about the exact demarcation of borders in, in uh, Palestine versus Israel when we're told not to care about our own borders? Did you come across this divide in this kind of double think when you were working for the Swedish embassy in Jordan? Well, thank you for having me on the show. But uh, I, th I think this issue has different layers. Um, 
Um, and I think the compare, I mean, there, even though there are similarities between the conflict, um, um, what is going on between the Palestinians and the Israelis and the Russians and the Ukrainians, nevertheless, I think um, what Europe has done um, regarding the Russian-Ukrainian war is, first of all, Ukraine is part of Europe. Um, their borders is um, directly um, into uh, with European Union countries. Um, there is that um, long uh, uh, sort of, um, I don't, don't want to say a, a war, but a struggle um, between Russia versus Europe. Uh, it's been going on um, since the early 20th century. Um, <clears throat> so they, they um, so they're, so they, they, they took into that, they, they take that um, conflict in a different manner. But on the other hand, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, it's even though it's been going on for more than 75 years now, but um, um, a lot of Europe, what I can see is that a lot of European countries, they look at it as in, oh, it's in a different continent, different people, we don't really care, even though that the, ori the origins of this conflict is a European origin, um, starting from 1917 with the Belfort Declaration uh, and then the anti-Semitism movement in Europe, where a lot of uh, the uh, European Jews were either executed or expelled uh, at best. So, so the origin of, of, of the conflict is actually because of Europe. But now they are trying to say, oh, it's it's not my problem. It's not our problem. Uh, let them deal with it. Plus that there is that sentiment uh, towards Israel in terms of they feel the guilt of what happened in Europe back in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. So any kind of criticism towards Israel is 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 it's very very hard um, for Europeans to take. Now it varies from one country to the other. I know that Sweden is not the UK, it's not France, but that's the general kind of um, um, norm, I would say. And as a as a Jordanian, as a Palestinian origin, um, I look at that as in. Right, there, there are kind of uh, there, there, um, there is a double standard here between how they take the Russian-Ukrainian conflict versus the um, Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Yeah, I mean, can we could we just sort of refer to your own experience? It's interesting because you said you were working at the uh, Swedish embassy in, in Amman in Jordan, and they were all wearing their Ukrainian pins and very partisan. Which is surprising for me because I thought diplomats are trained in seeing both sides, and there are both sides. There are two sides in this conflict, as in every conflict. Everyone thinks they're the victim anyway. Um, I, but they were very cautious about letting you state your opinion on the Israeli-Palestine conflict. It, I I think again, I'm I'm not trying to defend their 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 their, their position, but I think because um, Sweden's long history with Russia. Um, um, even um, during the Cold War and after that, there is that sentiment. So I guess that's that's also um, um, we, we should take that into consideration that 
um, it's been always the, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say the enemy, but they, 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 they look at Russia as that, oh, this is, there is a threat coming from the East, um, where Palestine and, 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 and Israel, this is um, quite far, uh, we try to be neutral, uh, a lot of uh, diplomatic entities, they try, whether in Jordan or elsewhere, they try to be, I would say, on the safe side. They don't want to uh, get into troubles. Where for Russia, I mean, immediately, I mean, once Russia invaded Ukraine, the European Union and a lot of European countries condemned, um, um, put sanctions, um, all of that. So, um, so the difference here is that they um, there is a direct kind of threat that they could feel uh, from the Ukrainian-Russian war, but when it comes to the Palestinian-Israeli one, um, they don't feel that threat. Except recently, when the Houthis are basically blocking uh, um, ships uh, in the Red Sea and Right. Now, sorry. Right. Like so you, are, you, sorry? you're happy with their response to Ukraine, or that's not your problem. But what you demand, yeah. what, what would you, what made you unhappy with the Swedes you were working with? That they were not engaged sufficiently <laughs> in the Palestine question. Well, they prevented you from having an opinion on it, which you thought was hypocritical because they had well, strong it, opinions on other things. Again, even though that they didn't directly uh, prohibit prohibited me but then when we had this dark you know a friendly chat and uh, and I would say you know my opinion publicly uh, about uh, the issue and they were like oh you know we have to be careful about stating opinions because as an employee at the embassy or at the uh, yeah you know that I get my paycheck from the foreign ministry, I have to be also careful about, you know, my opinions um, politically, I would say. But then, you know, that was the hypocritical side where I said, like, right, you know, yes, I'm, you know, I have to be careful. But at the same time, you know, this is something that is deeply rooted in my origins. I am originally, you know, my parents are originally Palestinians. Um, you know, I still have family there. I know, you know, I... I I I can't be neutral about it. I mean, it's quite uh, you know, it's quite uh, a, a lot to ask for. It's like asking a, a, a Holocaust survivor uh, not to talk about uh, what went back in the 30s and 40s in Germany and Poland. You know, it's like oh, mm. you know, it's the same kind of thing. But again, they don't see that, and 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 I think my issue here not only with the Swedes, but with a lot of Europeans and North America, the West, as we say, is that they don't see that, that they don't see that actually it is, right. a, it is a problem. That no, but they, as I see it, we're, we're responsible for the Holocaust. And so we're responsible for this. Uh, and, we're, and we have not taken responsibility for the consequences of it. And so we assume that Israeli-Palestine problem comes out of nowhere. So you want yeah. us Europeans to take more responsibility. Although, Absolutely. I mean, that said, it's almost, you could say that the, since 1945, the, the centerpiece of, of, of the Western Atlantic political space has been this kind of, uh, which I disagree with, is this kind of centrality of the Holocaust and it must never happen again. 
So every every time we go and smash another country, it's it's in prevention of the greater evil of another genocide. But of course, it's a self-serving argument because in the process of doing that, we create more problems, you know. But um, anyway, but but I mean, um, we, we we want to focus. I don't want to have a sort of big discussion about that Israeli because others do that. I'm very interested in your specific experience with with the Swedes as an insider, as it were, the Scandinavians, kind of naive Europeans, and mm. and uh, what you thought, because you also talked about how you thought they were, that, that Swedes were naive about radical Islam. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, my experience uh, when I was, uh, I, I lived um, for a while in Switzerland and in Belgium, uh, and also I've been to Sweden and, and, and uh, Denmark, uh, few times in general not only in sweden but in northern uh, in northern europe uh, i i've seen how they are even though that they are you have a lot of uh, political parties who are critical of political islam uh, muslim minorities now there is a line here that is a bit blurry that where people they um, um they are thinking of you know, criticizing Islam means, you know, you're being Islamophobe. And I and I know the difference between, you know, criticizing an ideology versus criticizing a um, um, group of people. And that's totally two different things. But the thing is, a lot of people, they play on that harp where um, where you can also you can see um, even in the um, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, when people criticize Israel, immediately they are accused of being anti-Semitic, which is not the case. The same thing goes to uh, a lot of um, Europeans when they are dealing with ideologies, radical Islam, radical groups in Germany and Northern Europe and elsewhere. It's that often a lot of these groups and um, alongside, I would say, uh, the extreme left who are too scared to um, address these issues. Yes, there are differences. We cannot, I mean, all cultures are different. I mean, of course, there are common things, but there are a lot of differences. Um, um, you know, in, in um, you know, in, in, in Islam, it is allowed for, for a man to marry four wives, you know, where in, 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 in other countries, you're not. In other countries, you can even have nine, you know, according to the moments. But the thing is, when you're criticizing this, immediately they're afraid of criticizing any kind of practices by certain minorities among the Muslim um, minorities in Europe is that, oh, we don't want to be perceived as um, as Islamophobe. And I think they are a bit, you know, they need to be like, oh, sorry, no, these are the rules. If these people are coming into these countries, there are certain rules and regulations that they have to be aware and they have to be abide, you know, and it is- so how, how much do they, migrants to Sweden have to assimilate. I mean, we don't all want to be, we must respect people's cultural differences mm -hmm. and all that. And I, I but where does it, yeah, what, do, where does the line have to be drawn? I mean, um, you're allowed polygamy in Sweden if you're already married in another, another country. So, 
you have these brochures uh, made out by the social uh, security department what to do if you're married with a younger girl or something ridiculous like that you know and it's it's a, almost a bit obscene to many swedes and it makes many people pile in and and vote for the so-called far-right party where should the line be drawn in assimilation and adaptation i think the assimilation can be drawn in into you know try to find where you know first of all i mean uh, a good starting point is to find the common ground what are the common values that this migrant who comes from middle east or asia or africa coming into sweden what are the common grounds between him her and and uh, the swedish uh, um, culture and you go from there now when it comes to differences um there are differences that you can um that you can live with i mean um muslims don't drink alcohol they don't um i'm talking about the adherent muslims they don't eat pork um now that's fine you can you can still have a uh a normal life you know by you know practicing these uh, um uh, these things now what is unacceptable is as you said you know if um if a child marriage and again you know i don't want to generalize because i come from a muslim background and most of people here in 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 the middle east they don't believe in 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 child marriage but some do and that's where i think that the the swedish government should just be firm about it because even here in jordan it's not allowed now of course there are cases where they go you know uh detour in order to do it illegally um as as in also you know the mormons would do that in the us where they can have another second or third or fourth wife uh, unofficially now that's the that's where i think the government should be very firm and say no anyone below right. 18 or 21 no you cannot now, buy can i have a slightly more ambivalent example difficult to interpret where i go in, in my local supermarket um this town i'm in right now is about 20% migrant population it's happened very quickly and all these a lot of elderly women you know never going to work and never never worked they do their shopping there and they may have arrived two or three years ago and they'll speak in arabic to this swedish cashier and this this girl and she looks at them with kind of hatred because you know she's paying very high taxes in sweden for these people to have quite a good lifestyle and she's expected to answer them back in arabic you know but then i have some left wing friends fine and I, i get irritated some left wing friends says what does it what do you think it feels like when when your your elderly parents go to spain and speak english to 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 the cashier in in uh, the costa del sol i mean isn't that just as bad so you know there's always a you, arguments and counter arguments should people you're right. in sweden start you're... learning arabic in, in in certain communities you're right i mean language again is not only a tool but also it's it's a you know it has a cultural uh, root on the other hand i um again i don't want to blame the swedish government or the german government or any of western government entirely but when you are receiving um 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 immigrants it's the government's duty to brief them it is the government duty to 
sit um, sit down with them, um, provide them with I don't know maybe a two three year program plan on what are the things that me as a migrant should have and should do in order to have I would say a normal life in this country. One of them is learning the language and you should provide, you know, the government should provide and force, actually, I am, I mean, my, um, uh, I hope you don't mind me using that word, to force this um, migrant to, to, uh, to, um, to learn, to learn the language. Now, I know there are cases where it can be maybe um, challenging. Um, for example, during, you know, when a lot of the Syrians during the war uh, migrated to Europe, uh, escaped the, the, the war in, in Syria. Now you can, what would you do with um, um, an 80 or 85 year old woman or man? I'm not quite sure it will be easy for them to learn a second language. Again, there are exceptions. I'm sure there are people who would learn but i'm just you know i'm giving an example would this person um you know have to like would this person uh won't give uh won't be given um uh, the legal um residency there just because he or she could not master the language i don't think so but on the other hand we could you know maybe um provide them with like like say all right you know your your son or your grandson should be accompanying you when you're going mm. to do shopping at the supermarket or when you're going to do any kind of administrative uh, um, uh, issues and and, and 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 in order to provide translation right or it could be the government that maybe they can provide um but that's on the governmental offices but to back to your um, example at the supermarket, of course, it's very, if I am that cashier woman, I would be annoyed if that person is coming to speak to me in, in a different language. Now, I know English could be universal, and that's what a lot of people, I used English when I was in Switzerland and in, in Germany, whatever, but because that's a universal language. But I know that a lot of these people don't speak English. Of course, we a lot of them, do, but a lot of them, they don't. We, we have to sort of be speed up a little bit. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, what you have is is, is the working class, the blue collars who vote against immigration and the white collars who say, well, that immigration is okay because for, for white collar people, immigration means talking to nice people like you who speak English and feeling sophisticated and going to nice restaurants and having maybe cheap cleaners or something and giving so they feel oh i'm a good guy because i'm letting in all these immigrants but they're not competing for jobs or culture with the working class they don't go to the same supermarkets as the working class they don't sit there in that cashier's seat seat and have to feel sort of a bit humiliated because somebody i've seen some arab guys not speak to these these cashier women because it's beneath them i mean they're, they're kind of rude in a subtle way towards them and i think it makes my blood boil i have to say but anyway, just to, to, sorry, just a final question because yeah. I kind of got to wind up. Yeah, the issue of property and land. We in the West are supposed to think where you live and your property. We're all urbanized. We're not farmers anymore. Doesn't matter. Anyone can come into this country. Anyone can leave. We're all global citizens. At the same time, we focus on the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict, and their territory becomes very important. You you said that how leaving your grandparents, uh, they lived in Hebron and you feel excluded from that and you're now living in Jordan and angry. I understand that. 
but aren't Swedes right to be angry that they are living in another part of, let's say, Malmo, because their old white working class quarters are now completely taken over by people from an Arab culture. And they said, you have to worry about Ukraine or you have to worry about Palestine, but you're not supposed to worry about your own country. And I think well, that's true. And of course, yeah, of course they should. I mean, they should. I mean, the government should. And that's again, you know, but like, let's not put all uh, the blame on, on the migrant, nor the white Swede. I think the government should have a strong role in integrating these migrants into the society, being very, very firm about laws and regulations and what is what is expected from the migrant to be assimilated, to be a good citizen in that um, in that country, whether learning the language, learning the traditions, knowing what what are the do's and don'ts, what are the because again, you know, I'm you know, if if let's say tomorrow I decide to go to um, um, Sweden and decides to live there for whatever the reason, um, I should, I mean, part of, of course, but now again, you know, maybe because I know I'm, you know, I should learn the customs, the traditions, the the do's and don'ts and, and, and all of that. But there are people who come from way less fortunate circumstances that you need to guide them. You need to, um, um, as we say, show them the way and and give them the tools in order to um, in order to assimilate into society. Because a lot of the times, and I've seen that in Europe, where migrants they come, the government they just give them the papers, the right papers, so they can live, and then they leave them, and then all of a sudden, right. you know, that guy, you on, know, on the point person, of leaving, I think we have to. Uh, break there for the next guest. So the point is, your main point is governments need to do more. They need to take responsibility yes. and not to blame the white working class. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. See you again. Honey Wake. This thank is you. TNT thank Radio. You. Thanks. TNT's Patrick Henningsen. Hamza Dahoud was the eldest son of the Gaza Bureau for Al Jazeera, while Dahoud, who previously lost other family members in Israeli bombing raid. And we would say that this is probably in terms of conflicts uh, this many journalists have been lost uh killed injured in the whole of the second world war and that lasted uh a number of years and only in the last three months are we scraping a hundred on the uh journalist uh fatality list which is coming fast and furious out of gaza patrick henningsen on today's news talk tnt Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. 
There are opportunity zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. From the Cold War to propaganda and the deep state, Helen Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Hi, we're once again going to uh, South Africa, the land of the very, very long power cuts, which are absolutely devastating to the country's economy. But we've got a guy here, Dorian Wrigley, who's an engineer and an entrepreneur who's going to tell us about a cheap solution to helping out with this. Tell us about it. What is this project? Bella, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Um, Yeah, you're right. Uh, We have a few challenges in South Africa at the moment, and one of them is ongoing rolling blackouts um, as a result of the aging infrastructure. But um, but South Africa is not alone when it comes to aging infrastructure. And as a result, um, there's probably about 50% of the continent of Africa that has absolutely no access to power at all. And, um, And that's where we came in, and we have a company called Pico Power, and, um, and really it started uh, when, when a professor, a professor Billy Cornier, who was uh, head of engineering, electrical engineering at Pitts University, just thought to himself, what are we gonna do to solve this power crisis for those that need it the most, the poorest of the poor? And, um, and he re- very quickly realized that the solutions that have brought power to well, pretty much everybody in the North, in the West, wouldn't work in Africa because Africa is a very large continent. Even though it's got a high population, it's got a very low population density. And so he knew it had to be an off-grid distributed solution. So so what we have have now is what we call the power brick. And uh, that's it. As you can see, it's it's obvious. It's called the power brick because it's shaped pretty much like a brick. It is a 12-volt DC power supply. has a lithium-ion battery inside of it. And... um, you charge it off the solar panel and you kind of say to yourself, well, hang on, maybe I've seen a few of these anywhere on uh, Amazon, on any of those places. But the, the difference to what Prof. Cronier created was he created one that is fully plug and play, but also expandable. And so what you've got is a power brick, which can power things, but when you need more power, you just simply get another one, plug it in. And as a user, you can keep growing your system from the bottom up. Mm. Okay. Well, I mean, the obvious objection, um, I remember um, I haven't traveled that much in other parts of Africa, but I have a little bit. And and where even owning a plastic bucket is an asset that you can you can rent out usage of your plastic bucket to other people on the street for an hour or something. Yeah. How on earth are people yeah. like that, communities like that, ever going to afford this rather expensive-looking object? You know, I mean, isn't it <laughs> utopian? So, so Bella, you're quite right. I mean, because. of Africa earn less than, I think it's $1.90 a day. So when you present present them with a product that's going to cost you $100 or $125, you're right, that's completely unaffordable for most. But what we've been able to do is we've been able to build into this technology, the same expansion technology in the power brick, we've been able to put in a mechanism that allows the power brick to lock itself every every uh, 30 days, but you could set any time limit you want, but we've set it for 30 days. One thing that despite Africa's poverty, there's plenty of is smartphones. 
And um, what you do is you just simply link your smartphone to your power brick with a Bluetooth, uh, Bluetooth connection. And, um, and we're able to then rent these out to people that can pay them back over 12, 24, 36 months. And what you simply do is once you've made your payment, we will then WhatsApp or SMS you the next unlock code. You unlock your device and it's good to go for another 30 days. And so the model is critical, as you pointed out, because it would be completely unaffordable unless you could package it in a way that makes sense for people. And because it's been built for robust African conditions, we want this to last as long as solar panels last, which is 25 years. And so effectively, if you finance this over 36 months, you have something that you then have debt-free that you can then use, hopefully, for the next 20 odd years. Hmm. Well, it's, I mean, it's obviously it sounds like a good idea to leverage mobile phones, which everyone does seem to have. Um, and so you'd attach, uh, you'd buy a solar pa panel separately. I mean, you're talking about this box as a kind of power box to which you could add other implements. Like, yes. apart from a solar panel, what? What, could you, what else could you add to it? So, so Pele, you see, the, um, the, what, we, what, what we realize is that pretty much the most fundamental, there's some fundamental things that every community needs. Water is one of them. Energy is another one. And then on top of that, you can then have communications and education and the ability to create wealth and all those other good things that go along with it. But until you've got a robust, sustainable power solution that's cost-effective, you can't do any of those things that you've mentioned. And so once you have one of these, not only do you unlock your ability to take things like candles and paraffin out of your house for lighting, you then create the opportunity for your kids to study at night, even when the sun goes down, which, to be honest, many people in Africa can't do. But then you also have the opportunity to use this to create wealth. So even though these are prolific across Africa, because people don't have power, people have to be very creative about how to keep their smartphones charged. Even in South Africa, people are handing these to their neighbors. When neighbors come in to do domestic work or anything else like that, they ask their neighbors to please charge their phones for them and then bring it back to them in the evening. And they'll charge them, I don't know, maybe 10 Australian cents for the for that, you know, to kind of do something like that or no. So probably about a dollar to do that. For them. I'll, I'll and, just uh, interrupt you there. Sorry. Uh, a little anecdote from my Western perspective. When I went down to South Africa, even even though I had access to power and so on, uh, the fact that there were four or six hours power cuts, even in the hotels, three star hotels I stayed in, meant that yes. the power of your mobile phone became the overarching concern of your day. I mean, you know. I couldn't think about anything else. I looked at the percentage and where can I charge it? Can I go into a cafe to charge it that, that, that has its own generator? And if you're a poor black African, it must be an overwhelming uh, concern. Yeah. Anyway, so ca carry on about this. Um, but okay, who is going to put up the money to, to manufacture these units and distribute them? And that's a down cost that they'll hopefully get back over the years. Have you got any any idea about that? So at the moment, Pele, we've self-funded it. You know, so um, the investment company, my company that I'm part of, Mbona Capital, an impact investment company, partnered with the Wits University uh, back in 2018, and we established Pico Power as a separate corporate entity. Wits University is still a, a key shareholder in the company, as well as the original developers of the IP. And so that's really given us the capital to get going and build the initial units and start selling those units into the market. But you're quite right, there's a limit to what we can do as a startup. And as we are proving up this model, as we are demonstrating that poor communities are not necessarily higher risk when it comes to payback. In fact, 
they are often a lot more committed because they don't overextend themselves because nobody will give them credit. And so if you can find a way to not just give them something which is affordable, but then give them the ability to then use it to create wealth for themselves, you then find that they are very, very happy to pay the five or $10 a month that they would need to pay to keep that system running. And then after 24, 36 months, it's paid off. Financial institutions, both grant institutions as well as commercial institutions are now setting up and taking notes and saying, okay, so there is a way to access this market in a way that's not exploitative. And can we come right. along and give you the funding? Hmm. And uh, the, the UN, which is, I think, not very popular among our viewers, could uh, go in and buy a lot of these things and, and distribute them. But I mean, it le leads to the obvious question, which we'll talk about after the break, is uh, security of these objects, because you, you need a yes. functioning policing system, otherwise it gets stolen. Anyway, yes. this is after the break. This is TNT Radio. JDRF's vision is to create a world without type 1 diabetes. The type 1 diabetes community is at the heart of everything JDRF does. We were founded by the type 1 diabetes community. In the main, we are governed by the type 1 diabetes community, we're energised by the type 1 community, and we're accountable to the type 1 diabetes community. It's on their behalf that we exist, and it's on their behalf that we must succeed. JDRF exists to rid the world of type 1 diabetes. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. So for us, that means rallying all the resources and all the people and all the organisations required to make that a reality as quickly as possible. The world's best researchers, exciting innovative companies and the passion of the type 1 diabetes community then delivered through the health system so lives get better every day, day after day, until the day we find a cure. To everybody in the type 1 diabetes community, no matter your age or stage with the disease, whether you were diagnosed recently or a long time ago, we need you to know that we are here working on your behalf to deliver a world without type 1 diabetes as quickly as we can. Thank you to everybody who supported JDRF in so many ways. You are making our vision of a world without type 1 diabetes possible. Kids Cancer Project funds vital research into childhood cancers. And you fund the Kids Cancer Project. Funding research means giving children back their lives. And who knows what kids with cancer could grow up to do. The Kids Cancer Project. Survival starts with science. Donate now. The Kids Cancer Project. Propaganda versus the truth. You're with Swedish-British journalist Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Right, we're here talking about uh, power in the developing world and lack of access to it. Um, just a little personal anecdote. I remember, I think one of the most um, effective exhibits, I, exhibitions I ever saw at the Science Museum in London was, um, uh, there was, I think, on light and energy where you were invited to to walk around in a sort of a series of rooms that brought back the world of just, I don't know, 120 years ago, 130 years ago, which was characterized by very, very sparse lighting and you could barely find your way around. It was just a candle here and a, and, a, and a whatever kerosene lamp there or whatever. And you felt that, uh, my God, uh, life before electricity really was quite tough, you know, for just our great grandmother's generation and um, how the electrification of the world. I mean, I think in the Soviet Union, they there was a famous opera talking about electrification 
And that was one of the slogans of the Communist Party. He realized what that what a powerful the whole idea of electrification was an enormously powerful idea. But of course, much of the world, especially in Africa, doesn't have access to power at all. So they're living like those ancestors and they go to school, but they can't do their homework in the evenings. But we've got a solution here from Dorian Wrigley, which is an apparatus, which is solar powered. And you can buy and you can rent, as it were, you can uh, you can pay for time used. So it's affordable to the poorest Africans. What you need is um, money to invest and roll it out. But you also need other things like a functioning policing system to avoid it being pinched by your acquisitive neighbor because it's so valuable in relation to the income. So what's your solution to that, Dorian? Well, you're quite right. Um, and, um, and, and, and what we find in communities, poor communities, especially poor communities, is when there's infrastructure in place that doesn't belong to the community, when it belongs to the municipality or to the government or to something, then it's almost like there's almost a sense of that's free for all. And, um, and so what we've done is we've said having the right product is not going to solve this. We need the right business model as well. And so what we found is we said we want to go into the communities. That's where we want to serve. We want to, together with the community leaders, and to be honest, most poor communities have very well-functioning informal community leaders. In fact, there's quite a formal informal system. When I say it's not not government recognized, but it's in, it's formally recognized in the communities. And we want to go into those communities and with those leadership, identify franchise owners from those communities. Work with them, develop them, equip them and train them, and then provide systems with them together with a financial partner. And it's quite low risk because you could start off with a limited amount. You could start off with 20 systems and get those installed and rented out. And then you can go to another 50 systems and store those, rent them out. And so your risk is fairly low up front. One thing we've discovered about these communities, Pele, is that when they are close and they are very well formalized, they you find that safety and security is a lot higher because the neighbors are looking after each other. And of course, there tends to be a bit of kind of community um, uh, policing, which happens and often with quite dire consequences for people that don't pay a toe the line. And so, um, so we find that there's very few systems that actually go missing. But if it does go missing, what we've done is we've built the system in such a way that if you were to strip it out, there's nothing of value because the locking that we spoke about earlier locks everything. It locks the battery, it locks the power, it locks the, pretty much locks everything. So it would be worthless. It would be a very expensive paperweight, but the only person that it would have any value for would be ourselves and the original owner. And so we suspect that if people did start stealing them, they'd probably realize quite quickly that the risk to stealing it is just not worth the paper. Right. I just, if we could sort of uh, switch gears a little bit, because uh, when I was down in South Africa, I was investigating the the, uh, the degradation of infrastructure. Um, and now you've got an election this year, and maybe that'll come up on uh, because the ANC, the the party once headed by Mandela has been in charge for 30 years. And since then you've seen a, a large rise in population, but uh, the the power stations, I mean, it's almost like a joke. Um, the two, is it Kusila and the other one, I can't, uh, Madupi, yeah. uh, yes. they built these very, very expensive power stations, but they 
supply them with the wrong coal or something because the the truckers there's a kind of trucking mafia that insists on bringing the coal from another place which where the coal is of different quality and not adapted so on small behavioral issues like that or, or systemic cr criminal issues the whole system collapses and as an engineer i'm sure you've given a lot of thought to these things i mean why how can south africa if we just look at south africa now which is a semi advanced country how can South Africa's power situation be rescued? Pele, you know, the, um, I guess South Africa certainly, uh, and I don't know the details of what you've mentioned, but I can quite, quite I can see that that could really be what, what was caused. What we do know is that those power stations have been, have been unoperable more than they've been operating. They seem to be up now, which is good. And so we hope that we'll have a good run. But what you, you're quite right. You know, the, um, when you look at a nation, and South Africa is no different, a nation that has got such needs. What we are finding is that the private sector is stepping. And the private sector is saying, you know, because I think we all have issues with our governments. I think every nation has issues with their governments. We can complain or we can rise up and say, okay, what can we actually do to make a difference? Now, it's not great. We much prefer an operating electrical system. But as a result of the, what you just mentioned, there are people that are buying my system for load shedding solution. Now, I didn't build it for that, but it is a way of being able to kind of plug that gap in the interim and figure out. Uh, the amount of solar installations in South Africa is just off the charts. And, you know, that's because of a dire need. But I think when we look back on this, we're going to find that South Africa has got such a large amount of renewable solar infrastructure in place that I think would actually stand us in good stead in the years to come. So I, I, I'm not by any means saying we're not concerned. There's an election coming up. We hope that people are going to vote for a government that's going to give them what they need. Um, and um, But in the meantime, we're stepping. Do, do you think we're heading towards an era of, now you've got these decentralized power solutions, that we're heading for an era of decentralized government? Uh, I, was, I was interested in South Africa because I thought, well, is this a crucible? This is where North and South meet, if you like. Uh, yes. Is this what the future of the world? Should we always look at South Africa as what's, what's going to happen in 30 years, where communities, we don't live in nation states anymore, but we live in communities, each with their own power and maybe even with each with their own security. Is that coming to the global north as well? What are your thoughts about that? I think that um, by necessity, communities are needing to become more self-sufficient. And that means they become less reliable um, on, on a centralized form of government. I, I think there are certainly a lot of advantages to having a more de decentralized, community-based self-determination, uh, but a lot is still determined nationally. And so the elections are gonna be quite key. One of my other roles is I'm the, I'm a, I'm the director of what's known as the Independent Candidates Association. Uh, this will be the first election where independent candidates will be allowed to stand as on the national voters, on the national ballot paper. Up until now was only parties and i think that's been part of the problem to be honest because party politics becomes politics and very and very often the real needs of the people get lost within those old political agendas right this is a quite a sensitive question but one of the um when we're talking about the the the, the childhood vaccines that have saved so many African lives. I mean, we're not talking about the vaccine, the latest one. I don't want to even get into that debate right now. But I mean, um, it, it, it allowed 
a lot of uh, Africa's population to grow from what 200 million when I was a child or 300 million to what is it 1.5 billion and then 4.2 billion in 20 years. So, uh, because people's uh, the UN has predicted that the childhood inc- uh, the, the 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 natality would in- decrease, but it hasn't decreased to the point where the population doesn't grow. So. I know that Elon Musk talks about depopulation as the world's problem, but to, from my horizon, it seems overpopulation, at least from Africa, is the world's problem. So what are your views on that? I mean, I'm, I, I don't know. It sounds like a terrible question to ask, but I mean, uh, life was nasty brutus in short for most of us. And then when it got a bit better in Europe, the Malthus predicted that uh, we would all die off because we couldn't have the agricultural produce revolution. But then the new world opened up and then we had a technological revolution that enabled us to supply our Europe's growing population. Are you yeah. pessimistic about the future of Africa in a world of 4.2 billion people? I am, I'm by nature optimistic, Pele. And uh, you know, I, I'm by nature a somebody that says, what can we do to make a difference to people's lives? Um, to be honest, I'm not an expert on the question you just asked, and that doesn't mean I'm trying to avoid it. Um, but what I do know is that when I look at uh, some of the West and some of the North, where the population decreases are happening and the, and the population is aging, uh, there's a great demand for skills. And of course, they are raiding South African skills and African skills. And that, of course, um, that's great for the individuals, but it's a problem for for the, for the African countries that need those skills to kind of stay invested. So um, I, I don't know is my short answer, but, um, well, but I, I'm not sure whether overpopulation is the problem globally. I think on the right. whole, Africa might solve some of that crisis. Right, yeah. But what you're saying is about immigration, and we talk a lot about immigration because there's a global issue and we're a global channel, so we could talk about these things. And... Um, we talk about immigration as doing the poor world a favor, you know, well, we're letting them in and, and, and they can barely fend for themselves. But of course, we're, we're as you said, we're raiding the skills level. And it, and I, I talked to a lot of engineers because I used to work for an engineering magazine and they, they got their expensive education from a South African university. Yours is an excellent one, I know. And then they scooted off to the USA, but you've decided to stay. So, well, this will be the sort of the last question, the last topic. Why did you stay when many of your peers left? You know, I was um, I spent some time in the, in London, and everybody wanted me to stay. I was asked to go to the US, but I just felt like the place I could make the biggest difference was Johannesburg in Africa, and it's my home. I um, mm. I want to see this continent prosper, and that's really the bottom line. And so I don't know how much of a difference I can make, but I'm hoping that. Each of us, a little drops in a bucket, can ultimately make a difference. That that will. And, know, and, that will and do you, yours is a fantastic project. Are there other projects at your university that are solving other aspects of the poverty equation? There, there certainly are a lot of collaborators that are part of this. We're looking at communication, which is a nice add-on to our project. And are there low-cost communication ways of being able to? Because the other place that people have been fleeced in South Africa and Africa is on data costs. And so communication is so critical, but the cost to acquire data and the cost to acquire voice is is, is really, and so looking at lower cost um, data prices and being able to roll that out in a way that's meaningful to communities. And so yes, there are these projects that we are all trying to collaborate on to see if we can make a difference. Dorian, thank you for having uh, 
giving us your time and we'd love to have you on again and uh, good luck with your project thank you very much dorian wrigley thank you this is tnt radio